Thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is uh, Sharad Kutta. I'm one of the uh, directors of the Georgetown Lit Festival. Uh, this session is called Journey to Activist Island. Um, I conjured up the, the title with the image of, you know, a kind of a teenage or, you know, children's adventure story. If you think of, you know, uh, you're approaching this island, it's got a huge mountain in the middle of it. Uh, once you land on shore, you suddenly hear these drums uh, or there's violent shaking in the in the trees, in the distance, and you think there's some sort of beast. Um, that's not quite the story of Penang, I understand, but what Penang does have as a story is this rather unique place in the country of a combination of activism, intellectual life, uh, um, respect, a healthy respect for dissent, um, and it was for uh, many years, many decades, uh, a place that the rest of the country uh, and people like myself uh, going to university used to view the country through the specific lens of uh, forms of intellectual activism that were happening on the island or coming out of the island. Now, our, our first speaker in this evening's session on uh, activism and its history in Penang and its contemporary expression is Francis Lo. I, I know he's known to many locals as Sam. Uh, I think he's affectionately called that. Unfortunately, my relationship to Francis has not graduated to Sam, so he's still Francis to me. Uh, he's just come off a, a, a launch of a book about uh, the experience of a school uh, at St. Xavier's and uh, and that, of course, is another way of telling a story. Now, the story that I had asked him if he would tell us uh, is the story of Aliran, the magazine that uh, Francis and many academics based at University of Science Malaysia ran for years. Uh, you know, it was, a, I guess, a collective. It had notables like uh, Chandra Muzaffar and many others. Um, and they led the way uh, for a generation of activists, like I said, this will date uh, Francis quite a bit because I was um, a young undergraduate when I was reading Aleran. Um, to think about the country in, in ways that were different from what was being produced as the dominant narrative of developmentalism and such. So um, it's a fascinating story, a story that speaks to the larger context, but I want to invite Francis uh, to the stage to first tell us that story, and then we could have a little conversation and see if we can build uh, together with the others who are joining us, Murli, Rexy, uh, and then later on Shalina, who's an elected representative, a story of Penang. So this is what uh, we hope this session would do. Francis, please uh, join me. Round of, hand, round of applause for Francis. Uh, do you want to go straight into your presentation? And yeah, okay. Uh, good afternoon, evening, everybody. So glad to see Lindley. <laughs> anyway, anyway um, for me, it's a bit of a misnomer, this one. Journey to an activist island. I don't know where that is. I probably got lost along the way. But, uh, you know, there are activist groups here. But in a sense, some of them might be considered passé. You know, so we'll see. Okay, uh, can I have the... 
Okay, um, our roots go back to the early 70s. It was after 69. People were very disillusioned, sort of like the mood that the malaise that we are in right now. And people are just searching for what do we do? Where do we go from here? And uh, a group of people in Penang then thought that, you know, we, we ought to begin to, this was not in vogue, you know, create, get together, form an organization, get talk politics, but not be a political party. Okay, today you automatically think, oh, NGO, CSO. But that wasn't the parlance in those days. There was no concept of a non-governmental organization in the early 70s. You know, you want to get involved in politics, you go and join a political party. There were no two ways about it. Otherwise, you shut up. And the government told us such because they divided you into either a political society or you were a, a, a social society. You know, that was the, uh, in the Societies Act. You know, you're either a political society, you declare yourself as such, or you're a welfare social organization. Anyway, so this was what we were, we were caught in this kind of situation. We wanted to sort of break that boundary. Next slide, please. So we got registered in 77, and so this is you know, what we put on our website now. You know, social movement, its aims are to raise social consciousness and encourage social action that will lead to social justice. And social justice is possible only if the social order enables every human being. So this was the language of that day. You know, you empower yourself, the whole concept of conscientization, it's the baggage of those times. And the last point is, we talk about our humanities, total expression you know, of the eternal universal values such as truth, justice, freedom. We did, we actually believed in these things in those days. You might not, you know, but we did. And some of us still do. So this was, you know, we were actually looking for, you know, big change. Big picture, big change in society. Not like, okay, let us fix the environment, let us fix gender relations, let us fix, you know, preference, social, sexual orientation. That's so specific. This was big time. We were going to change the whole world. Okay, next slide. So this, are, you know, it started with Chandra Muzaffar, but we have become, you know, there are many, many other people. Remember that, please. Don't hearken back to Chandra Muzaffar. There's also Francis Lowe, there's Rama Krishna, you know, uh, Arifin Omar and Chandra. And of course, the president right now is Prima Devaraj. And Prima sends her apologies because uh, uh, she has been hospitalized actually. You know, I think she was just over exhaustion because she was scheduling to attend. She was organizing the hospice dinner tonight. And tomorrow is our AGM, Aliran AGM. So this poor woman, you know, just overextended herself. Anyway, and we are only 200 people, 200 members strong, and we sort of get over 210, 215, and then we realize, oh, there are a lot of 20 people who haven't paid their fees. So we kick them out. You know, and then it comes back to less than 200. And then we pick up again, and so on and so forth. Next slide. So we started off um, writing about these matters. These are article-length articles. The first, uh, first um, magazine that we produced was called the Aliran Quarterly. And that was already very challenging. You know, we produced four times a year. You know, it was about 60 pages, you know, A4 size. And then later on, we decided to go 
uh, we became next. Uh, well, this, this is a story in itself because we had applied for a license for a long time. Uh, in those days, uh, you could hardly ever get a license to publish. So we were then told one day, where is your, the issue that you're supposed to send to Kementerian Dalam Negeri? It's been months. And you know, what are you doing with your license? And, we, and suddenly we realized that we had been given a license. So we came out with immediately a broadsheet, just four pages, and sent it in. It was full of a lot of you know, things we just pulled out from our constitution and so on and so forth. Next page. And then we began to steadily produce over a period of uh, 80, 90, 20 years. Okay, so it goes on. All kinds of issues. Uh, in the beginning, this was a very, very important issue. You might not remember. This is the Bumiputra Malaysia finance scandal, you know, which uh, millions and zillions of dollars just went missing. And they sent this man to Hong Kong to go and investigate, and he gets bumped off. Can you believe that? You know, this is like in a detective movie. So he gets bumped off. And then uh, in those days, we were publishing basically black and white, and the front cover, we could afford to go color but only one color at a time. You know, it was very expensive. And this was at one dollar, or one ringgit per issue. In the 1990s, we got, you know, a bit more ambitious. And so we began to go multicolored. Uh, this is four colors, actually, in the front pages. And we could also afford to have color pages in the middle because they all make up into uh, eight pages, so to speak, isn't it? So you can you get front, back, and middle. And in the middle, we used to carry our thinking aloud. Thinking aloud, which was making fun of our politicians. And thinking aloud, A-L-L-O-W-E-D. You know, but suggesting also thinking aloud. So anyway, these were the issues that we uh, talked about. Um, I covered this story, what happened in Kampung Rawa. Um, I don't know if you remember in that, in that year, um, Kampung Rawa, there was this Muslim versus Indian Hindu, you know, um, crisis, big conflict. And uh, it was actually thanks to Anwar who came along to resolve that problem. And, uh, and uh, we avoided, the curfew was imposed in Penang. I think that was the last time we had a curfew in Penang. And uh, um, some of the mama stalls here were closed and attacked. And uh, actually, the community in Little India used to be more intermixed. But following this incident, people then began to you know, distinguish themselves. This end of Bishop Street became very, very Hindu. That end became more Muslim, and so on and so forth. So there were some these kinds of repercussions that took place. Next slide. And we covered these kinds of issues, um, basically, Rule of law, uh, corruption, uh, what was happening in the universities, the judicial system. And so in the 1990s, one of the big issues, sorry, if you go back to the last slide, um, one of the important issues that we did was actually in the 1980s um, when actually the whole judicial crisis occurred. And in a sense, People come back, come back to our old issues and use them for references. 
And this is quite incredible because they don't actually depend on us in the recent past. But it's significant that they come back to us when they are doing research on the 80s and early 1990s because actually, in a sense, we were the alternative publication. There was nothing else actually beyond the pale. So it was, you know, it was, it was that sparse in a sense. Okay, and, uh, and at best, at, at, you know, when, um, when we reach the uh, Oprasi, sorry, we can go on. There's Oprasi Lalang. Oprasi Lalang was 1987. Actually, we have, if you're ever doing research of that period and the lead up to the eight, 1980s, Oprasi Lalang, followed by the judicial crisis, the AMNO A versus B conflict and all that, Aliran Monthly is the best source of documentation. There's no doubt about that. You know, and people cite us all the time. Why? Again, because there was nothing else. There was nothing else. Um, this period, Professor Jomo and his gang, the Nadi Insan people, they published Nadi Insan for a while, but it was closed down. You know, Asian Wall Street Journal, Raphael Pura and his gang, they were closed down. So that, this was that period when you were actually, you know, threatening to step on their toes. And they were very, very conscious you know, uh, and very, very adamant that you don't try to be too smart. So the production of Monthly went on, 1984-2014. Who were these people who were producing this? And the word that comes to mind immediately is we were scholar activists. And we were not a large number. We were actually anchored. We were actually anchored in the university. And uh, many of us had a head start to writing because we, we studied social sciences, which allowed us then to try to analyze you know, the events of the day in quick time. Our problem was actually, how do you write for the popular masses? And that was a challenge to somebody like myself. You know, I mean, I had to stop using footnotes. Uh, I have to learn to write, you know, using straightforward language rather than, you know, jargon, social science jargon. And actually then, uh, and you slowly begin to realize people don't enjoy reading long argumentative pieces. But it was still better than today. Today, two pages, that's the limit. In those days, you could, you know, actually get them to read five pages, you know, but which is quite a difference from writing a 10-page, 20-page academic exercise. So this was, we were scholar activists. We learned to cull all this you know, uh, jargon from our writing. But at the same time, the advantage I had over many other scholars was that actually I had investigated a recent event and I could now go back and ponder over that compared to some other event that happened earlier or in another country, pull out a theory from the background, and hey, presto, I had an academic exercise. So, you know, there was this mutual exchange all the time between popular writing for the masses and at the same time actually enhancing my own academic credentials. So, I must have done right because I became professor. You know, so it was the, so that was the, the thing. Now, uh, today, 
the writing that has um, that we produce. Sorry, can you just go on? I think the slide then says, oh yeah. And then we, we actually stopped publishing in 2014. And uh, it coincides with the post. We, were, we sort of peaked again in the Reformasi era, era. And uh, for a while, we carried on our website this picture of the Reformasi people carrying Aliran, you know, as they were demonstrating. You know, and uh, it was our picture of them. But the irony was now they were carrying the picture of themselves, you know, and which we then uploaded into our website. So, you know, quite interesting sort of like turn uh, of how we depended on one another. So we stopped publishing 2014, partly because um, after 1999 elections, by 2004, all the online dailies were already in place. Plus, you had Astro. And Astro then meant, you know, you, you could get the CNN, QuickTime, you could get BBC, you could also get, uh, what you might call it, uh, Al Jazeera, QuickTime. So actually, you don't need to wait for Aliran a month later to tell you the alternative news. You could actually, you know, stop reading your NST, stop reading your stuff, and actually turn to the online dailies or to the international, you know, uh, media. So this was something that affected us very, very badly. At the peak of the Alira, the Reformasi period, we were hitting, we were selling about 20,000 copies per issue. As a result of this, we started losing sales. And uh, some people, you know, I mean, they still wanted to distribute our magazine, but it was impossible to collect any money from them. That's a general problem that all periodicals face. Yeah? And so, and then it started dropping. And by the, by uh, the 2014, we were hitting as low as about 3,000 copies per issue, which does not pay. You know, you cannot even actually pay for all your expenses. So we seriously decided that we would have to close it with a very, very heavy heart, I must say, and decided then actually we would go online. Not that we were so savvy, you know, but uh, we learned again very, very quickly. And uh, some of the younger people among us, uh, not so young, Anil Neto is not so young, you know, but uh, he's definitely somebody who is more IT savvy. And so you had people like this that we recruited and they began to help us to go uh, online. And initially, uh, this was very sporadic, but I think today, today, uh, we produce, we upload at least a story a day. And at the end of the week, we can do a weekly roundup. You know, and uh, we do an e-newsletter. Uh, hope, you know, the, the goal is always to come out with four issues a month of the e-newsletter. But actually, uh, we all maybe hit three times a month. Uh, but for me, that's still very considerable because uh, we remain actually an organization which does not collect subscription. Everything is done free. And we actually employ a single, we employ a single, I shouldn't say employ, we actually give an honorarium to a single person you know, who access our webmaster. And all the rest of us are doing this on the side. You know, and uh, everybody um, can find reasons 
why they cannot deliver on time. You know, it's so easy to find reasons. You know, so and uh, but out of responsibility, we will deliver within a week. You know, most people these days in Alira, they say, oh, your turn is coming up next Tuesday. Oh, I cannot. I've got, can I do it on Friday? That's how it is. You know, but uh, to our credit, um, we continue to exist. And what we have also done is we have actually now put all our old issues together as a complete set. You know, and uh, Malaysian newspaper, uh, news libraries are not interested in buying this. But we've been able to con some of these foreigners to buy the entire set. You know, so Kyoto University, Southeast Asian Studies, you know, uh, London School of Economics and SOAS, you know, Cornell, my old school, I conned them into buying the entire set. So that helps, you know, to fill up our coffers. And then uh, anyway, so this is what we have done. So this is where we are now. Yeah? And uh, it's a challenge. Um, we, are, we cannot be equally active in social media uh, because this is already a huge burden for us. You know, and we are not like the Penang monthly, you know, which, is, which can afford to lose money every month because they get a big you know, handout from the state government and they employ quite a few, not a few, you know, uh, writers. And even if I write for them, they want to give me an honorarium. You know? uh, we as regulars and other we don't get, we are not, you know, we are not entitled to something like this. Okay, I'll stop here. Uh, we're going to continue uh, with a bit of a chat before we go to uh, the other two uh, guests who are coming on. I, for me, you know, I'm 53, uh, and I struggle with history, the history of the country, uh, specific histories like uh, our intellectual histories, and I, I kind of categorize or place Aliran within that intellectual tradition. Now, I, I want to go back to the, you start at the moment when Malaysia comes out of uh, the suspension of parliament, a return to democracy, it's post-69. Uh, and you talked about um, wanting to be political without wanting to be in party politics. But you come after a generation that included, and this is a very Penang story, the, the story of Gerakan, that was led by uh, the historian Wang Gangwu, uh, by uh, Said Hussein Alatas. They were... They were intellectuals first, got into politics, formed a political party, but it all went sort of pear-shaped. Was that the reason why you and your, uh, your cohort, were you responding to that, that particular history of failure, if I can call it that? Yeah. Actually, there are some of the people who were involved in the formation of Aliran who were actually very close to Said Hussein Alatas. And Sai Hussein Alatas, if you remember that period of history, um, he was sidelined. And um, the intellectuals, the, not the intellectuals, the professors, the academicians of that period actually wanted to get involved in politics in a more indirect way. And that would include you know, Sai Hussein Alatas, but also Wang Gangwu. Uh, Sai gets ousted, uh, Professor uh, Wang Gangwu migrates to Australia, that's the ANU, and the other two leaders 
who were more active in party politics, which was Lim Chong Il and uh, Tan, um, Tan Chi Kun. You know, they remained behind. But uh, they, they formed new political parties, in a sense. So they continued to struggle, but in a more familiar manner. And that experiment, in a sense, died down. And I should also clarify that in that period, it was very, very difficult to get a permit to set up a society, a political society. Like I said, it was for them a bit of a misnomer. I mean, what, was, what the hell are you talking about? Either you're a political party or you are a social welfare organization. You know, and uh, so it was very difficult. And many of us then got around this by... Um, Aliran was one of the few organizations which got a permit to set up a society. Many other groups actually uh, applied for a non-profit making company status. So, you know, and so um, it was very, very easy to register a company. And you just need, needed to put into your articles of, you know, uh, of, of your memorandum of understanding that you are non-profit making. So that the, whatever money you make from selling books or you know, holding meetings like this and all that, you actually plough it back to the organisation. So this was how, what it was at those periods. Now, if you remember, there was also a pamphlet that Gurmit uh, Singh uh, put together called uh, Society's Political Friendly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, political, to talk about being political had a very negative, or it, there was an attempt to cast being political as a negative uh, characteristic uh, for um, for. NGOs or non-governmental organizations. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about the, the, the issue of scholar-activists, because it does seem also peculiarly um, Penang, and I, I, I might be kind of, you know, overstating this, but the institutional setting, the fact that you all were academics based in a USM, University of Science Malaysia, continued to uh, produce very critical reviews of the government of the day, and yet, uh, not only did you still have your jobs, many of you actually got promoted and did very well institutionally. Was that itself, uh, is there something to be said about that dimension of the story? Yeah, I think that's important. But I, I, don't, I think the special character of this group of, the, 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 this group of scholar intellectuals, scholar academicians in Penang, perhaps then takes the form of uh, Aliran. But I would think that actually in the setting which is Kuala Lumpur and PJ, that same group of people actually take the form of uh, Persatuan Science Social Malaysia. That would be its equivalent. Okay, that one was a more national style body. Because that organization was headed by somebody like Syed Hussein Ali. And then you had Ishak Shari, you know, and then you had people like Raman M. Bong, you know, so they were all involved in that organization. And Jomo took over, and uh, Rustam Sani. So that was that grouping in Kuala Lumpur. Over here, we didn't have that national status. We were more narrow, confined. There was a single university here. They had five, six universities over there. No single university here, and everybody belonged to the same one. But you're absolutely right, because the people who actually began to write for Aliran on a regular basis were actually had day jobs as academicians. 
you know, in the university. So I'm talking about Johan Saravanamutu, Kuke Jin, you know, um, uh, Mustafa Anwar, Zarom Nain. So we took turns to actually write the story, the next lead story. And it was my role. I was the uh, secretary of Aleran for 25 years or so. And, um, and my excuse for not assuming the presidency earlier was, oh, I'm in the university. You know, I'll be kicked out of my job if I become president, which was actually not true. I mean, you could have actually, but it was a nice excuse not to assume, you know, that uh, headship of an organization like this. So, uh, but my role was actually to chase people, to make sure that, hey, Johan, you're writing next week's, uh, next month's lead story. You better prepare. Kukejin. And I must say that these articles were research articles. It actually made a difference. Oh, and then we would chase Terence Gomez. Terence was an Aliran member, very active, and he would do the political economy. And he would write to us about these kinds of issues. And Jomo would write the occasional piece and all that. So it was quite a nice group of people that we were able to mobilize together. Again, research pieces. Now a lot of things that are put out there are too much on the mill, on, on the run. And also opinion, right? There's a lot of opinionating, yeah, a lot as they call it. Opinion. I, I want to ask you about the milieu. So you, they, here you have USM, you have your academics, you have Aleran as an expression of it, but you also had in Penang, and I don't know what the timeline is, you can help me in this, was uh, Consumer Association of Penang, uh, I remember Sabat Alam, uh, you know, Sam, that was also a big thing, me growing up knowing that there were all these kind of other activist outfits that seemed to be, from, from my point of view, a very Penang thing. Was there much of a dialogue between all of you? Oh, there certainly was. I'm just saying that actually, if we're talking about the more, the, 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 the big picture in a sense, I think it was this group of people, this particular group of people who are actually more scholar activists who were writing about the big picture. However, you would have a Sabah Alam focusing more on the specific environmental issues or the consumer issues. Or, you know, um, whatever, the papan, which became a big issue at that time. Or botanical gardens. And then the heritage people would come along, I'm looking at, at uh, you know, Lindy and I, of course, must remember, that they began to focus on the heritage. How, was, how it was so central to, you know, Penang's identity and its destiny and so on and so forth. But this particular group was more interested in the bigger picture. Very interesting about the big picture that you mentioned, uh, because it seems to me, if today, in many ways, the challenge is that everybody can get information from any, any number of sources, what uh, Aleran provided wasn't just information, it provided worldview. And uh, if I, you know, I was a child, obviously, but you know, in the 70s, there were also magazines that, and you mentioned Isha Ashari earlier, uh, you know, truth, you know, a kind of uh, left Maoist um, uh, newspaper that, that perhaps is largely forgotten uh, now. But Aliran didn't seem ideological, at least not on the face of it ideological. It had uh, an interesting and also spiritual slash religious um, language that used, that they couched its critique of, uh, of developmentalism. Can you explain what exactly is the Aliran worldview? I think, um, actually, Aliran started off, we didn't just all jump in and started, okay, 
next week you start writing. No, we didn't. We actually spent years uh, studying together. You know, and we would study the issues of the day. We studied documents put up by Gerakan. Is this the party that we've been waiting for? We looked at it and oh no, no, this definitely not this one. And then party socialists, Mimba socialists. Actually, Mimba socialists, some of our friends doubled up and wrote for Mimba socialists in English as well as in Malay. And Mimba Socialist was a very, very thought-provoking newspaper at that point in time, you know, already. Uh, and so it's, it was this kind of writing that actually began to be put out and people began to respond to it. What was Aliran's worldview? Aliran's uh, worldview was that actually... The first principle is we believe in the supreme truth. And you can call it God, Allah, you can call it, you know, the enlightenment, whatever, but there is something called truth out there. And we adhere to this. And when you present it in that manner, even if you are an atheist, you could actually accept this because there was some truth that you can aspire towards. You know? So it was presented in this. Uh, and, and our attitude towards religion was that we must get beyond the rituals. And we projected the perspective that actually uh, we are rowing in different boats, but we seem to be going in the same direction. You know? And uh, one of our best sellers was one God, many paths. Today you cannot say this. Because you cannot pray together, you cannot, you know, you get, uh, you get on, the knees, on the knuckles and so on and so forth. Like the recent MGS school problem. You know, they were trying to pray together for world peace, you know, to be successful in exams and all that. But no, it cannot be led by a Christian. You know. So anyway, this was what we nonetheless pushed for. And then, and quite apart from that, you know, then we took a position that as far as national culture, language is concerned, actually, at base, this is a Malay land. You know, the whole issue of Malay identity has to be addressed. However, we very strongly pushed for um, non-Malay rights, their right to believe in anything, uh, uh, their own religion, to learn their language, promote their culture, and the existence of their Chinese schools and Malay and Tamil schools. So this was the perspective that we do. We took sort of like interjecting in between the races on the one hand. And sometimes, you know, the, in those days, in the socialist perspective of the 60s and 70s, perhaps sometimes too anti-spiritual, too critical of spirituality. So we took this path sort of somewhere in between. In between. And we used to hold a lot of meetings, you know, when we started talking about the gender issue. We start off by saying, what is the Islamic perspective on gender relations? And what do the Buddhists say? And what do the Christians say? What do the Hindus say? And then we discover that everybody has got nice things to say about this. But that's not enough. So the next thing is, but what do you actually do about these things? And that's the problem. Because I say this, but I do something else. So we discover the problem is not with the teaching per se, but actually the practitioners. And that brought us down to the ground. So I, I thought that, that 
you know, in a sense, I got very bothered when everybody would say, oh, you know, my religion is so good about this. Everybody is concerned about the environment. Everybody is concerned about equality for everybody. But actually, we practice it, you know. Um, we, we actually don't follow our own teachings, the teachings that we say. So this was the perspective of the push. And why is this important? Because we thought, and we, we thought that uh, we were a left group, um, a bit green, but also a bit spiritual. And uh, in a sense, when you, the summing up of this is that, and I would represent the organization in some big international meetings, and I'll discover that actually I'm a bit different from some of the Western leftists because they don't pay the same lip service to some of the issues that I'm already concerned about, you know. And actually, they are very often more concerned. Yeah, so it's, it's just that, yeah. Okay, and very quickly, last question to you before we ask Rexy and Marie to come on. Um, you know, you, you talked about sort of the waning relevance, perhaps, of Aliran today, at least in terms of the take-up and, uh, and what people will buy and how they would support you. Because uh, you certainly need support. D did you see in, the, in this process, in this evolution of 20 years, other centers, other uh, competitors, if you like, in a nice sense, for intellectual leadership, for shaping uh, a discourse, political moral discourse on the, on the trajectory of the country? Uh, I think this is uh, definitely, I mean, many, many things have come to pass. I think one of the most important things is actually what has happened in the first instance to academia itself. And uh, one of the titles was that uh, crisis in the university. And our universities are undergoing a severe, serious crisis. And it's not been addressed, you know, 20, 30 years hence. So it's, uh, it's absolutely lousy management, but it's also actually how things have become extremely bureaucratized. And in the process as well, corporatize. You know, and the, the arts, the social science do not get the kind of attention that they used to. And even when you give, you get promoted for actually making, you know, if you score enough points to get into one of these other journals and all. And very often, these are measured technically. So this is, this is a huge problem that's evolving. And I think, uh, the fact that you have a lot of private universities does not help this. Because personally, I think the standards in the private universities are even worse. You know, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are running to this university. You know, and, uh, but the, so this is what's happening in university. And very often, people are now, because you have also specialized in the universities. Once upon a time, we had a group of people called the social scientists of Malaysia. Now you must be a political scientist. A sociologist, an anthropologist, a psychologist, big group of psychologists, you know, and they have the biggest classes. They teach their introductory course can be 500, how popular they are, you know, and uh, so they have their own um, in, uh, org academic organizations and they very often talk to one another. Again, that whole big picture is missing in their depiction of what's happening in Malaysia or in the world at large. So this is one of the problems. I think that's, so how is this waning or not? I think a lot of people then get caught up um, 
with concerns about actually more material concerns. And actually, a very interesting thing is that uh, within the Malay community itself, in the academia, you actually see a younger crop of Malay intellectuals who are actually potentially going to be very good academicians. But they cannot move up and cannot get promoted because they're seniors who were promoted on the basis of being Bumiputra and all that are sitting in these upper places. So they are blocked from actually moving up. And it's very frustrating. So people like Izudin prefer to go and work in Penang Institute. You know, and you know, the people are moving out. You know, a very good buddy of mine, you know, like Masna Muhammad, she moves out to NUS. This is a new thing. In the past, Malay intellectuals don't leave this country. You know, Bakri Musa moves on to become a surgeon overseas. You know, so this is a new phenomenon that's beginning to emerge. Okay, I'm going to leave uh, Francis for a while and ask Francis to remain in the room. Um, um, and then I'm going to ask um, Rexy if he can come and he can talk. So Rexy, in many ways, represents uh, a, a younger generation. I'll try and see if we can draw some threads together uh, to kind of, you know, uh, to kind of sketch a picture of this so-called activist island. Um, Rexy, uh, please, um, uh, please take this. You have a presentation, right? Okay. Rexy Prakash Chako, sorry, that's your full name. So. Right, okay. Thank you, Sharad, for that introduction. And uh, good evening to all of you. So I really enjoyed Francis's presentation just now. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to just start off with by distincting his presentation from mine is that, you see, Francis comes from uh, the 70s generation and has a more rich history of activism. And mine is something which is more recent. We don't really have much of a history. And I also represent the movement which has never been registered. So we are more of movements where people come together and we fight for a certain cause. And uh, the thing is we stick together, but we don't actually register our organization. So two of, uh, I'll be talking about two initiatives which are very Penang-centric, uh, the Penang Hills Watch, and also uh, one of our initiatives which started off after the Penang Hills Watch, which is the River Awareness Project Penang. So next. Okay, just to give you an introduction of who I am, uh, I'm born in Penang, born and bred. I, uh, I was schooling here. In fact, a good majority of my life I spent in Penang. And I've always been fascinated by nature. But the irony is somehow or rather, I actually became electrical engineer. And I'm still trying to figure that out. And, I've, and hiking for me is an obsession. And I'm also the co-founder of the Penang Hills Watch Initiative, as well as a committee member of the Penang River Awareness Project. Next. So the thing is, uh, many of you might be visitors to Penang. Some of you are residents of Penang. And one of the uh, things that you notice when you come to Penang Island is how hilly this island is next. The thing is, uh, no matter where you look, north, south, east, west, right, left, you will definitely see a hill. 
And the charm of Penang is the beautiful green hills which actually kiss the turquoise blue waters. And this also kind of explains why Penangites are very passionate and very defensive of their hills. Next. So the hills actually, they give us so much. Uh, they give us a place for recreation. The thing is in Penang, there can be new destinations for hiking every week. And even within one year, you wouldn't finish the island alone, yet alone the mainland. Then of course, they give us our water. About 16% of water for Penang State comes from sources on the island. And the thing is, the water from Penang, Penang Island is of a better quality than the water from the Muda River. And, that, and if you were to ask some of the Nasikanda uh, stall owners and shop owners right here in Georgetown, what is the secret behind their Nasikanda tasting so good? They will probably tell you it's the water, the Penang Island water. Then it safeguards our biodiversity and regulates our climate simply because all the green area in Penang today is pretty much confined to the hills. But what has next? What has happened over the last nine to ten years is that we started noticing more and more in uh, Malay, we call it Botak. So we started noticing more and more bald hills or Botak hills forming all around us. And these are just four examples. And the thing is, it could be for road construction, it could be for residential development, it could also be for, in fact, some of it is also illegal uh, clearing of land. And the thing was, we saw this happening at an accelerated rate all around us. And I grew up during this time, seeing these things happening around me. Next. And with the proliferation of such clearing activities on the hills, human-induced natural disasters started happening. Next. So you had the Tanjumbunga landslide in 2017. 11 people died. Next. Then, of course, you had the worst floods in Penang happening on the 4th of November 2017. So the, uh, so the thing is, it also caused about hundreds of landslides. In fact, on Penang Hill alone, there were almost two to 300 landslides happening right there. Next. And then you had the Bukit Kukus landslide happening last year when nine people died. Next. So in just a matter of one year, between the months of October 2017 all the way up to October 2018, you had 27 people dying not because of natural disasters, but human-induced natural disasters. And if you were to add the landslide which happened this year in Tanjabunga again, this number would actually rise up to 31 because four people died there. And yeah, so the press, of course, they had a field day. Everything on the news related to Penang was natural disasters, landslides, floods, and whatnot. And the, and this was uh, the scenario, uh, especially towards the end of last year. Next. So it was in this background that we actually started Penang Hills Watch. So in fact, we started about one year before all of this happened. But 
it was also the time when things like this were actually heating up. And we started Penang Girls Watch as a citizens-oriented initiative to keep watch on activities affecting the hills by involving the public in reporting hill clearing and sharing this information with the government. I know that's a mouthful, so next. So how we actually work is we rely on hikers and the public, those who go out to the hills and suddenly you come across something which is fishy, you know, you have a bulldozer clearing the hill. What you do is you uh, take a photo, of course, within your own safety, you take a photo, you send it to us, we actually map, put it on an interactive map, and at a quarterly basis, we report back to the government. And uh, then, of course, we push for action. But the thing was, uh, next, okay, next. So we started off with the objective of being an online repository for citizens' watch on hill clearing activities. Next. And just to uh, help out in the monitoring and aiding law enforcement uh, in, in uh, tackling hill clearing. But of course, we grew out of just doing that very specific thing. Next. Of course, our work involved meeting and having dialogue with the government. If you see that photo, uh, we, we used to engage with the now Chief Minister Chao Kon Yo, and uh, when he used to be in his portfolio as the exco in charge of flood mitigation. Then of course we realized that a key area in which we have to invest our energy is also creating public awareness. Because one of the main defenses of our hills are the people around it. And if the people rally around the hills, we can be sure we can protect our hills. So we had public awareness programs and also capacity building. So many, after the landslides happened, the thing was many people living in areas close to the hills, they were very afraid. Oh, I see water coming down the hills. I see soil coming down uh, the slopes. What do I do? So what we did was we engaged an NGO from KL called the Slope Watch. So we are the Hills Watch, they are the Slope Watch, and we did a capacity building workshop where we thought, uh, we, we together with them, we taught residents how to look out for signs of impending danger on slopes bordering their homes. Next. And of course, some fun too, you know. It can't be all work and no play. So we had hikes and walks as well. Next. So what we have done thus far. In fact, over the three years we've been around, uh, we just celebrated our third anniversary on the 31st of October 2019. Uh, we've over this time, we've already highlighted about 80 cases of clearing of hill land, including 23 illegal clearing of hill land. So uh, there are legal development projects, which we also highlight, as well as illegal ones, which uh, we tip off the government to so that they can take action. Then uh, one of the things that most of you would probably have known about us is how we gave reports to the state about the Bukit Kukus as well as the Tanjung Bunga Granito landslide way before it happened. In fact, Tanjung Bunga Granito landslide, we gave an alert about eight months before it actually happened. And the Bukit Kukus one, 
was three weeks before the incident happened. And then we are also training a group of new hill watchers to watch over our hills. Then uh, one of the defining moments actually happened in 2018 when there was this huge landslide which happened in Sungai Kalyan. So Sungai Kalyan is, an, uh, is a river which flows through Tanjubunga on the northern part of the island. And the thing was, right after, and this landslide was not human-induced, it was a natural landslide which happened in the forest. And after this landslide happened, was what, what happened was the river, Sungai Kalyan, which actually flew right below the landslide, turned mud red or tetare color. And that's when we started to understand that whatever happens on the hills has an impact to the rivers. Next. Then, of course, we started realizing that landslides were not the only reason why our rivers were being polluted. We, of course, have the drains, the treated sewage, quarrying, rubbish, which was all being channeled to our rivers. Next. And, of course, the river, as it goes into the urban area, comes across a lot of obstacles along its way. You have canalization. I have a good word for canalization. I call it longkangization. Because the moment they make it a canal, you just don't know your river. It becomes a longkang. Then, covered up rivers, and of course, 90 degree angles along its flow. Next. And these actually led to the genesis of the Penang River Awareness Project. So we started off in 2018. And ironically, while Sungai Kalyan was one of the main reasons why we started off, we never started our first project on a river with Sungai Kalyan. Instead, we went next to Sungai Ara to start off. So how we were organized, it was part of, uh, Penang Hill was part of this initiative. We, we came up with this idea, and then we also got a few other NGOs, and with the help of uh, the, uh, the Ahli Majlis in the uh, City Council of Penang Island, uh, Chi Hengling. So Chi Hengling, Dr. Chi Hengling is also a representative of Penang Forum who acts as the counselor in the Penang Island City Council. So uh, we, we got her interested and she led this initiative with Penang Hills Watch and a few other NGOs involved. And our first one, uh, studying and uh, doing this river awareness campaign was in Sungai Ara. It was a three-month study where we started off with research and finally topped it off with a public awareness program. Next. Then, of course, in 2019, we came back to the reason why we started this whole project, uh, the Sungai Kalyan. So this was an extended study. So we started with uh, Sungai Ara, which was just three months. When we came back to Sungai Kalyan, we had almost one year. In fact, the river system was so much bigger than uh, Sungai Ara, and it needed so much more time to actually study. So the thing is, the river awareness project that we do, there are three components to it. So first, of course, is the research. So the research is quite fun. It's not just poring over maps and seeing where the river actually goes. We do a lot of hiking as well. Uh, to the sources of the river and uh, try to trace where the river actually starts from. The second part is, of course, the public awareness. 
So we just came to the end of the public awareness, which was just this weekend. And then the final part is also engaging the government to rehabilitate the river. So how do we rehabilitate the river? Next. So these are some of the activities we did in uh, Sungai Kulian. So we had a beach cleanup, upstream walk, exhibitions, and talks. Next. So how do we uh, rehabilitate a river? So we are pushing the state, uh, because we actually engaged the MBPP, the Penang Island City Council, as well as JPS and the Ardun of the area, to deal with the pollution sources which are feeding into the river. As well as the thing about Sungai Kalyan is there are many stretches along the river which has not been canalized. So it's still natural. And one of the things that you can do with natural rivers is you create community parks around this river reserve. And that is what we were proposing in this stretch of the river. So this actually starts from Tiara View, somewhere upstream, all the way up to uh, the Tanjong Bunga Market, and it's just a 1km stretch. And next, so how it looks like today, it's actually quite well manicured at the moment, but the thing is there's no life or no people using that area. So what we want is next, yeah. Something which is a vibrant uh, linear park along the river where the local community can come Rather than having to go so far away to probably the botanic gardens or the youth park, they have a community park within their area where they can go to uh, exercise and to build bridges among the community. Next. So thank you very much. And yeah. Thank you, <coughs> thank you Rexy. It's fascinating. Please, quickly before we get, uh, ask Marilee, Something city to come. I'm just looking at the time. Um, Shalina is going to join us at 7:30, right? That's a good new session. Okay. So um, you you start by saying you don't have a history. That history, I guess, you're, what you mean by that is that you you haven't been working at this for a very long time. You have the rest of your life to to develop that history. But there's a there's a past as well, and I'm I'm thinking about the way in which activism around uh, Penang's ecology was also part of the Aliran. Uh, agenda, if I could remember correctly. Do you remember any, any of that? D did it inform your own identity structure? What you were seeing happening in Penang in terms of activism, perhaps, uh, or abroad? What shaped you to become not just an electrical engineer, making good money, uh, making your parents happy, but also somebody who's committed to the community? Uh, so, one of the things uh, growing up in Penang is that you grow up around this heritage of activism all around you. People like the late uh, S.M. Idris. He was someone I saw in the media. People like Ku Salma also, I used to know them through the papers and through the portals online. So, the thing is that, and, and one of the reasons also was uh, we as a family, we used to read the star. And the star was quite well-known at that time for exposés on environmental issues which affected Penang. So from a young age, I've, already, uh, I've, I've been exposed to these issues. And what made me very sensitive to environmental issues in perspective was uh, from a, uh, also from a young age, we used to go out hiking as a family. So I saw nature firsthand, and I saw how beautiful nature was. And when I saw the destruction that was happening, 
I also felt motivated that I need to stop this or at least I need to do something to, you know, halt this. And uh, Reggie, how old are you? I'm 27. Okay. So you're extraordinarily young uh, from my perspective. Uh, tell me about your generation. Is your generation, are you an exception to your generation? Uh, are you having a hard time, an easy time recruiting people, considering, you know, all the concerns now, now global uh, around uh, climate change. Is it, is it easier, difficult, are people depressed, pessimistic, or they optimistic? How does your generation respond to the current uh, challenges? Right, so when I was actually in school, I was a relative oddity because while my friends were playing things like PS2 and uh, Dota, I was out hiking and, you know, appreciating nature. So I used to stand out uh, become the oddity among the crowd. But today, especially this year, this year and last year, after the whole climate strike movement has started, what it has uh, started off was, it's, it has uh, gotten people out of their comfort zones. And that too, also because uh, there is an increasing frequency in disasters which are happening around them, people start to make a connection between how mistreating the environment is affecting their well-being. Things like the Sungai Kim Kim incident and uh, all these events which are happening all around you are starting to shape the minds of young people today that you know, if you mistreat the environment, it's going to hit back at you. Yeah. So it's become easier to recruit people, yes, yeah. getting them to spend their time. Because I imagine this is a lot of effort. I mean, the, you know, uh, Francis, you talked about evidence-based, you, your training as a sociologist, in government, in government and all that, to kind of put out these, these magazines on a monthly basis. You're taking on research projects that perhaps universities ought to be or are doing. I mean, does it take a lot? I mean, how much in practical terms do you spend of your week working on things like this? Okay, so I often joke to people around me that uh, from nine to five, I'm an engineer. From five to nine, I'm an activist. And I take up these research projects. And in fact, uh, I do not see them as much of hard work. I see them as something that I'm truly passionate about, something I really want to do. Because at the end of the day, it's about leaving an impact and leaving a good impact to your home state. And I grew up and I feel that affinity to the island and the state because I want to see it preserved for the future generations as well. Yeah. Rexy, you've got a book, don't you, about uh, hiking yes, in, in the yes. States? Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm launching one tomorrow as well. Oh, yeah. so okay. So if you want to get a copy of that book, uh, go for the launch. Uh, take a break, a short break, and then uh, we'll be back with, with Murali. We're, you take a break, but Murali, come on. Thank you. Um, Murali Ram is with uh, Think City. Thank Prakash, uh, Rexy, for that. Uh, Murali, um, Murali has kindly agreed to... Uh, to engage with us on the question of activism in Penang. And then, you know, we have a quick discussion, then we'll ask uh, Francis and we'll do a quick roundup of the conversation. Please sit. You don't have a presentation, right? No, you don't. Uh, do you have a presentation? You said you didn't have a presentation. Yeah? Okay. Maybe you could speak about. Uh, um, <laughs> okay, okay. So you can, if you have a presentation. Okay, let's go ahead. The assumption is that in order to uh, speak, you need. PowerPoint slides. Well, uh, allow me to start with some disclaimers. Uh, I'm not an activist. Um, so I don't know why you invited me here. 
but I do work a lot with activists. So um, I work for an organization called Think City. Uh, it's uh, 100% owned subsidiary of Kazana uh, Nacional. Um, but it's a bit of a, an oddity because uh, it's a private company but operates uh, in the hybrid zone. So we work uh, with government and local society, uh, civil society, uh, local government, etc. And on our board, uh, we have two activists. Uh, one is uh, Lawrence Lowe and uh, the other is Dato Anwar Fasal. And uh, they do um, hold certain principles to heart and it kind of guides uh, what is it that we do and how we do things uh, in the organization. <clears throat> in the course of my work, I also have to uh, um, negotiate with uh, uh, policymakers uh, and, uh, and at the same time interact with uh, activists. And it's, it's often very difficult uh, because they see things from completely different lens. So I'll share with you a conversation I had about six months ago <coughs> with a politician from Penang. And uh, the politician says to me, this is the time. This is the time, really. We're going to bury them. We're going to bury MCA and Gurakan. And they'll never see the light of day again. We're going to bury them. This is it. If we don't do it now, it's now or never. And I said, yeah, YB, you know, you may want to throw them a bone because I think it's better if they are kept alive. You want them to be around, you know, give them a two, see, let them win a C or two, let them be around. No, we're going to kill them. I said, look, if you get rid of them, what comes in its place, you can't deal with. Because if the civil society was to step up and fill that void, you don't want to be messing around with uh, the likes of Minakshi Raman and Kusama and you know, Lima Hui in, in the political arena. You know, these people really believe in what they do, unlike most politicians. <laughs> right. So, so, um, so having said that, that's a disclaimer. Um, and I'm here not representing my organization. I'm just uh, here sharing my views on, uh, on activism in Penang. <laughs> and... Uh, Shirat, you asked me uh, earlier, what is it that makes Penang um, special? Why is it a hotbed of uh, activism? Well, partly because Penang people are crazy. Um, you know, I don't know what it is. It's maybe the water. But as uh, uh, Rexy said, uh, about 16% of the water is from here. Almost 20% comes from Kedah. So it can't be the water. Or maybe that's why only 20% of them are mad. But I'll share with you my own journey uh, into this uh, life of uh, non-activism. So I grew up a very angry child. Um, I'm 46, so you are 27. Francis, how old are you? Uh, almost 70. So I'm sort of like in between generation. So I grew up <coughs> an angry child. Because I, was, I grew up reading Aliran, and I grew up reading Haraka, and I grew up reading The Rocket. And these things make you very angry. And I was very angry with the Prime Minister of the day, a certain Datuk Sri M. Um, and now he's no longer Datuk Sri, of course. Uh, anyway, 
So I was angry with him, uh, Dr. Mahadir. I was angry with Sami Velu and his toupee. I was angry with uh, Ling Leong Sik, you know, and we just generally feel that uh, they're not representing the people at the time. And, uh, I, um, and being from Penang, you almost think that you belong to a separate country. We often dream of being a republic of Penang. But what do you do with the mainland? That's another question. So with all these, uh, you know, anger bubbling in, I was also very active in school. I went to the Penang Free School, uh, a school of very weird people. And um, there was a club called the Consumer Association of Penang. And I was very actively involved in that club. Um, and that club was sponsored by, uh, or rather we worked in partnership with the Consumers Association of Penang. So um, once I finished uh, school, I was working in the Consumer Association of Penang with the likes of Meenakshi Raman and Bayalan and uh, the late SM Idris, um, and you know, researching all kinds of funny issues. Basically, uh, everything was bad for you. When you're working with CAB, everything is bad for you. You can't eat anything. Uh, that's why they're very slim. So after that, I then went on to uh, university in University of Malaya. And uh, I was very privileged because one of my uh, good buddies and lecturer was uh, Azmi Sharom. And, and he was an activist. <laughs> He's from Penang. And he was very much into um, uh, voters' rights, uh, human rights, um, and generally environmental uh, preservation. So, and, and we spent a lot of time together. Um, then I was doing a lot of stand-up comedy in, uh, in the university, uh, a lot of sort of anti-government stuff. Basically making fun of Sami Belu, it always works. Most of you now like, don't, don't seem to know who he is. He's a very, very, very uh, funny guy, actually. Um, so um, when, I, when I came back to Penang, um, I published a book uh, called Malaysians Don't Talk Poppycock. Um, it was a satire talking about uh, sociopolitical issues. Um, and it was quite well received, except that the bookshops didn't want to take it. Uh, I remember going up to the Times uh, bookstore in uh, Penang Plaza, and I said, the distributor sent this book to you. Uh, why is it not on the shelf? No, they said, do you have this book? And they said, do you want it? I said, yeah. Then she, she, she takes it down from under her shelves and gives it to me like it's some sort of drug. And I'm like, why is it not on the shelf? Said, why are you asking? Said, I'm the writer. Oh, sorry. We are hand in hand with the home ministry. Like, you know, it's a book. Anyway, then that led me to, um, uh, at the time, uh, in 1999, there was an organization called Socioeconomic Research Institute, uh, SERI for short. And SERI was a very clever invention. It was um, a Gurakan-led uh, um, uh, sort of platform to create a coalition of NGOs so that the government could have an international inter intellectual discourse with the civil society and to see how the civil society can shape the future of Penang together. Uh, and in a sense, it is uh, the precursor or the foundation of what is today the Penang Institute and at the same time what it is today the Penang Forum. Because <laughs> it sort of banded people together and, uh, and uh, you, you have this coalition of NGOs. 
So the uh, Surrey afforded us a very good opportunity to uh, liaise and, and share ideas with the state government. But um, uh, that sort of uh, went uh, separate ways after a while. Uh, but uh, today we have uh, many, many NGOs in, uh, in Penang. Um, and some are louder than others. Uh, like uh, Anak Pinang. Are you a member of Anak Pinang? No? Okay, yeah. They're a very loud NGO. You haven't heard of them. Okay. I think I'll stop here because you are running out of time. Yeah. I mean, you provided the perfect uh, explanation about why you're, why you're joining us this evening. I mean, that the whole idea of wiping out uh, the, the opposition, I think, is, is fascinating. Uh, but I don't know if we want to get into that. I, I, do, want, I do want to invite uh, Rexy and Francis up here uh, and maybe very quickly to, to kind of reflect on some of the issues, a lot of the themes that have developed in, in your stories, and you know, including you, Morley, about the relationship between civil society and the state, um, the way in which people have either engaged or failed to engage on many issues. And you know, with you, Rexy, uh, the fact that your NGO does engage actively. What you don't talk about is whether it's successful, whether your representations are having any effect on policymakers or even in terms of the administration of the state. So you do a warning and yet there's a, there's a disaster. What, what happened there? Francis, if I could invite you here. Um, I would like to ask any of you, if you would like to ask a question at this point, we have about 10 minutes before we, we get to Shalina later on. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, Casey Chu. Thanks, Sean. Uh, I, my name is Casey. I'm a visitor from Singapore. Um, Francis, when you were talking about the um, history, I was something struck me, which was, uh, if I may ask the question. So, these you all were uh, academic activists, and you all did not lose your jobs. Um, in Singapore, you have lost your jobs. Um, and I'm just wondering, there's a, that, that statement needs to be a bit more nuanced, but generally speaking, I, I, I think I can stand by that. I was just wondering, what, is, what was it about uh, USM that, I mean, it's part of the national university system. What is it that allowed uh, that space in USM? Um, <clears throat> I mean, you have to situate yourself in the times. Times, you know, so many things have moved on. And at that point in time, um, in the 70s at least, um, no, in the early 80s, in the early 80s, you know, there was actually ferment throughout the country. This was the period when within the political parties, they began to fight against one another. I'm no A, B, you know, past had, you know, different people, and then the Arkham people came out of them, and, you know, everybody was fighting everybody else. And actually, and then outside, outside of the political parties in civil society, a lot of new groups began to emerge. This was the time when, once upon a time, Penang was, you could name the five, you know, NGOs in town and they would team up with the other five 
in Kuala Lumpur. And when we all went together to Kamunting to celebrate 1987, October 27, year after year, we would be maybe 10 carloads, five from Penang, five from Kuala Lumpur. We would raise our fists, sing the songs, you know, release some balloons, and then we all went, we, all, we went to Lake Club to eat together. Not Lake Club, the Taiping, Lake, uh, Lake Gardens, and then we all went home. See you next year. This was what it was in those times. Suddenly, the scenario had completely changed. You know, actually, there was ferment throughout. And actually, we realized that we weren't that important anymore. You know, but when we started, you know, in the 70s, early 80s, you know, we were extremely important. By the time we got to 1990s, you weren't important. You know, and if anything, they were very interested, above all, in Islamic radicalism. And so I remember in, you know, don't, I don't want to exaggerate that we were so important at all. We weren't. You know, the context was evolving all the time. And uh, my generation did not suffer the way that Syed Hussein Ali and Qasim Ahmad and all that went to jail for. You know, and even 87, you know, Dr. Cecilia Ng, Dr. Chi Heng Leng, Anthony Rogers and all, they were in jail. But by the time it came to my generation, it was a bit, you know, I still had to be called to, you know, every year when we renewed the KDN for the Aliran, I would go in, you know, with my editor and then we'll just, we had to do this. We met with a special branch, we shake hands with him and uh, over time I discovered that his hands were always colder than mine. He was more nervous than I was, you know, and that, you know, was, you know, I mean, after all, I was becoming a professor, you know, he was a young punk, you know, so it's a, uh, so it's this sort of situation that it was evolving. So, no. Um, and we, we, we were not important, but also the times had changed. Don't quite answer the question of the institution, the institutional context, but because we're running out of time, I want to ask if there are any questions. Uh, please, uh, somebody in the back there, in the back room, just identify yourself. Thanks. Hi. Uh, I have a question for Francis. My name is Angin. I'm with the Asia-Europe Institute in UM. Uh, my question is with regards to what you mentioned about um, uh, scholar activists. Uh, firstly, how would you gauge the kind of uh, new crop of scholar activists that you see coming up in Malaysia today? And secondly, um, scholar activism, uh, especially through the writings, can be at times quite deep, nuanced, and requires a fair bit of thinking. So how would that sort of uh, writing compete with the kind of fast-paced writings and like know, basically rants that you get on Facebook, WhatsApp, which is becoming the mainstay uh, in today's uh, kind of... Okay. Can I also extend that question to all of you as well? I mean, to what extent uh, the universities are producing research on the environment or, or urban renewal uh, to, uh, to address them, and how much do you work with them? Quickly, yeah. Uh, because we started with, this is for Francis, I switched off. Uh, uh, no, okay, maybe Rexy, Rexy, did you hear the question? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, I switched off to give an answer <laughs> the question. Okay. So I think what has happened is there was a period of time uh, for about 10 years plus, you know, um, when actually uh, the whole situation became very, very dismal in, in the universities. Um, and nothing was happening in a sense. And people were falling into their own silos you know, Islamic extremists, Chinese, you know, uh, extremists, and, and everybody was doing that. 
And I think I get very excited what happened over the last 10 plus years. You know, and I think there has a new ferment, a new round of changes beginning to happen. And I'm very excited about this. And I think I'm a decent gauge of this. Uh, my classes get enlarged or smaller depending on the times. You know, I remember at that period when reformacy was taking place, I mean, I could be teaching anything. And the students would just come and check me out. Just like they were checking out other, like, not just me, but other lecturers as well. You know, Uliao or not. You know, just check them out, you know, whether it's worth. And uh, I remember when Indonesia's reformacy was taking place, I was teaching Southeast Asian politics, and my class would overflow. I mean, I was, the enrolled numbers were like 50, but my class would become 100 plus 200, you know, on certain occasions. And then, okay, then when we went to study Thailand, they're not so excited. They came for Indonesia. They wanted, there was that desire to understand more. And that was very encouraging. And I see that beginning happen in small pockets. You know, and I'm very excited about the, the books in Malay that have been published by a lot of different, different small groups. Sometimes, um, some of them try to be perhaps too intellectual. You know, but uh, I, I find that encouraging. But I because I think before that, uh, there are lots of people just giving out opinions as though it mattered so very much. You know, actually they didn't. You know. Uh, I don't still. I still don't understand the columnists in the, some of our newspapers. You know why? Why are they columnists? Why do? Why do their opinions matter at all? Unless the the editors are assuming that oh, it's to draw in you know younger readership. Because you know it's it's like this one in Momon Kosong. You know. It's it's very interesting that yeah, there's a project called The Conversation, it came out of Australia. They're very strict. Uh, there's commissioning editors uh, who work with academics. Academics are only allowed to write opinion about their area of research. It's not, it's not a free fall as it is in Malaysia, strangely enough. Okay, um, any more questions from the floor? Maybe, Rexy, you could respond to the issue of um, you know, uh, as scholar activists, how much, to what extent do activists like yourself rely on research coming out of the university to, to think about the kind of issues uh, and to ground them in, in some, in some you know, in either the tradition of, of environmental studies and so on. How do you ground it? Are you getting help from the universities? All right, uh, I'll probably just answer that with also a bit of a background of when I was in university. So I studied in a private university in Sarawak. And the thing is, when you're in a private university, it's not really the environment which enables such activism. It's usually, if it's not curtailed, it's not a norm for people to actually get into. But when I came back to Penang in 2016 after my education, and the thing is, being in Penang, uh, you see a lot of students who are also involved in activism, especially people who are from USM. And in fact, uh, this year when, uh, when the climate strikes actually started in Penang and in Malaysia and the region as a whole. One of the persons who actually started it was, a, if I'm not mistaken, a final year student from USM. So the thing is, the environment where this kind of symbiosis happens, if it's in Penang, it's also partly due to the heritage of Penang, the activism heritage, that even the university also is able to produce activists 
And uh, as for your question on uh, whether the university actually helps us in research, well, in our experience as Penang Hills Watch, not really. But the thing is, uh, there have been activists who are also helped by uh, local institutions, especially in looking through EIAs, uh, projects like the PIL, the PT, PTMP, uh, the PSR project under the PTMP. There were lecturers. These were the students. islands to the south, is it? Yes. The three islands, yeah. Okay. So these projects, in fact, lecturers, university, people from the university also actually went through them as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all three of, uh, you know, uh, Francis, Morelli, and Rexy for giving us a sense. This clearly is um, a topic for a whole day, not just a single session, but thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to invite um, uh, Shalina Abdurashid. She's uh, an elected state assembly person uh, in Penang. Uh, you know, if you're not from Penang or from Malaysia, you'll, you might not know where the federal system and the states have their own assemblies. Um, and she's going to be in dialogue with Izuddin Ramli, who's with uh, the Penang Institute. So uh, take the two chairs, and thank you again. Um, Shalene has been on my show, and I asked her a lot of the kind of questions I was hoping, which is about her history and what made her the person she is moving from uh, activism into uh, formal party politics. So we only have uh, less than even 30 minutes, so I'm not going to waste too much of our time today. But just uh, uh, short introductions about our last speaker today. Uh, Shalina Abdul Rashid is currently, uh, I think Charlotte have like, explained a little bit about yourself, but yeah. Uh, Shalina Abdul Rashid is currently the, the state, Penang State Legislative Assembly for Sri Delima. And uh, prior to this, uh, she was uh, she was a councillor for Penang Island City Council, where she served for almost I think four years. Yeah, and before she joined politic, uh, politics, she she was uh, a director of a sport and recreation company, where she taught uh, windsurfing, wakeboarding, and even sailing. And she's uh, she's also. A, She's been actively involved in um, advocating for gender reform and uh, women's rights and also fostering uh, interfaith relations. And um, what else? Uh, okay, uh, she's also, I think, uh, she's now in the AP, uh, uh, Democratic Action Party, and then uh, she's, uh, she has represented the party in many local and international conferences, and uh, she's also part of the Progressive Alliance and also the member, committee member of SOCDEM. What is SOCDEM? So, uh, social social dem uh, Network of Social Democracy yeah, in Asia. For, yeah, Social Democracy and Social Justice. So, uh, thank you for, have, uh, for, for being here today. So, I think, let's, let's just, uh, I only have like a few questions, then I'll just leave it to the floor. Uh, let's just start with um, maybe, I think this is a quite cliche question, you know, how did you get involved in politics? I mean, you were a uh, graphic communication graduate and you also, you had also spent some time of your life diving in the ocean and then swimming with sharks. Now. I mean, now you are swimming with different kind of sharks now. So, yeah, so how did you? 
Oh, that's, not, a, that's a very uh, naughty, question, uh, naughty question. But um, the decision to, to actively participate in politics isn't something that happened overnight. I mean, let's face it, you know, being, being a woman, being a Malay Muslim woman in this country, you know, when you are thrust in such a public limelight, there are certain sacrifices that, that you have to make. So it's not, it's not really fun, to be honest, the sacrifices that one has to make um, in, in, in one's social life. But back to the decision to, um, you know, what, what, what made me want to say, yes, you know, let's, this is something that I want to do. Um, I guess, again, it boils down to what's in the air in Penang, right? And uh, obviously, what um, my, both my parents, uh, rather my parents, uh, my, my mom, she was a lecturer in USM. And, you know, again, being in that environment, you know, being in USM, and by the way, I also graduated in USM, Pusat Senia, Graphic uh, Communications. And, you know, being, being in an environment where you have both parents, you know, one's a teacher and one's a lecturer, they constantly just, you know, want to encourage some sort of discourse, even when I was at a very young age. And of course, you know, being, you know, kids, children are very curious, you know, especially, you know, they will just ask questions. Why this? Why that? Yes, and I was actually one of those kids. And my parents, I mean, God bless them, I love them. And the fact that they encouraged, you know, there was never such a thing as stupid questions. Just ask. You know, there's always an answer for something. And uh, it was, again, being in that environment. And most importantly, again, you know, um, my father always constantly bought Alira monthly every single month. And again, having, you know, grow, being, you know, reading such materials, you know, that obviously sparked a lot of interest. And uh, again, you know, all sorts of things. And obviously what happened uh, during the 1997 Asian financial crisis, 1998, and again, during, during the era, I was, I, um, I actually finished my uh, SPM in 1997. And by the way, I'm 39 right now. And having grown up in that period, you know, where, you know, you just suddenly wake up and see, you know, actually things are a little bit different in Malaysia, then that, again, sparked interest, and that reignited you know, the, the quest to find, you know, what is it that this country needs? And um, uh, also I decided one day just to, again, you know, join Alira. And, and uh, you know, that was definitely a decision that I will always look back and say, you know, that was one of the best decisions I, I made. Because in Alira, and I also, that's, that's how I started writing. And, uh, you know, writing for me has always been a way to express yourself, oneself. You, know. you also played in a, in a band. You played music <laughs> before, right? So, I mean, I, I, I want to know how music influenced your political view because especially when you play like a punk music, right? So, I mean, it's, it's quite political for me, especially mostly punk music. How, that, how did that influence your political view or does that influence your politics as well? And so the secret's out. Yes, I used to, I used to play guitar in a, in a, in a rock band. And again, you know, rock and roll has always been about rebellion and, you know, just self-expression. And again, I wouldn't say it's directly involved in politics, but, you know, some form of social awakening, social activism, definitely. And of course, you know, growing up listening to uh, Dead Kennedys and Rage Against the Machine, right? But again, it's, you know, music and especially the arts, especially the arts, be it writing music or even, you know, visual arts, 
it's the way I see it, it's, it's a beautiful way for one to express yourself. You know, you can make any, any story, you can express, you know, social issues, how you feel. And that's why I feel it's a very important platform for people to have. So, same thing. And, uh, but why, how, how did it uh, influence me? Um, same way how, same way how, same way how it influenced, uh, same way how books, for example, influences one to just think a little bit further and just think about, you know, when you read a sentence, memang ada apa? Maksud yang tersirat. There's always a layer over layers and layers of, of meanings. Yeah. Let's talk about, um, I mean, you were an activist before and now you're a politician, right? And, and I think uh, intimidation and personal attacks are, I think, inevitable for for both activists and, and politicians. And, I mean, after the election, you even receive a, a death threat. And then people accuse you of wanting to uh, weaken the Islamic institutions like the news, right? And then make Christianity as, as the country's religious, uh, uh, country's official religion. I mean, how, how do you keep going? I mean, it's, it's very hard for me. I think if I were you, then I would run away. I mean, I, yeah, not continue to run to. Well, that's the thing, you know, when you're faced with, I would, you know, when you're faced with such level of idiocy, yes, I said idiocy, you can't let fear get the best out of you. You know, you can't let such, such negative comments or even threats, you know, just scare you to silence. You know, that's something that both my parents always said, you know, if you feel strongly about something, do it. Say it. Stand up. Don't let anyone say it, tell you otherwise. So, again, um, the death threats, you know, the negative comments on Facebook and other forms of social media, this is something that happens a lot. And uh, especially for, again, being, being a woman, being a Malay Muslim woman, and uh, in, an, in an era where we can, I think we can agree that the level of religious and uh, the race card's been just playing over and over again to the point where I think most of us have gotten quite fed up, because um, for me, there's absolutely no, no level of real discourse, you know, especially like when you want to talk about policies, when you want to talk about economy and so forth. It all boils down to race and religion. So for me, what I, what I do is, and I hope what everybody else does, is, you know, when you're faced with such things, take it as a challenge. There's absolutely no reason why you should run away from it. And also, you know, just have faith in, in you know, what, whatever it is that you believe. Have faith in, in the struggle and the cause that you have and just persevere. I think that's also related to the, 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 pro, uh, the things that you are doing also in, in the AP, right? Uh, you know, political, youth political empowerment programs, youth political education. But before we, before I, we, we go further with that question, uh, this is also interesting, I guess, for me, uh, when we talk about social, uh, about activism uh, in the social media age. Like, uh, okay, we, when we talk about activism now, we cannot but to also include, to, to, to understand the role of social media in activism. Social media may have, uh, I think, encouraged activism and uh, get people engaged in causes, but I guess it's also uh, create some kind of illusion of activism or impression of uh, activism. People 
maybe uh, they, they, they think that they have done something by just scrolling down Facebook and Twitter or just by clicks, right? So how do you think the role of social media now? I mean, it's very important, right? Many people are doing activism in social media. How do you think about it? I mean, what's your point? Well, we can't deny that social media is very important. It's one of the, the best ways how, you know, people gain information. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great tool, especially if you want to know a little bit more about certain causes or, um, uh, you know, just, just uh, certain movements, let's put it that way, and reforms and whatnot. Then, you know, you get like a rough idea of what, an, an abridged uh, version of it. But also it can be used to destroy certain things as well. I mean, in this era of, again, fake news, and uh, again, you know, when it comes to social media, there's always, there's always um, the danger of people getting the wrong information. And for me, I believe that, you know, the challenges that we face in the 21st century is that we need to also focus on media literacy, especially, especially for not just, not just for the children, but also for the, the adults. How we digest information is very, very important. How we are able to read certain headlines and also think about the, um, you know, the, the, the meanings behind, behind certain visuals and all of that and how we dissect news. This is something that I think is still ongoing. Um, I think we haven't really quite figured out what would be the best way to tackle this issue. But definitely when it comes to social media, be it um, you know, Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram and I don't know what, Tumblr and all, all sorts of, um, of uh, social media platforms, you know, it can be used for good. So, again, activism to, to create, for example, uh, for example, uh, uh, Occupy Data Merdeka. Uh, this, this was something that I remembered, you know, a few years ago, coming across uh, such pages, you know, you see the posters, and that itself was just visually appealing, and that attracted you, and that, want, that, that uh, also stirred emotions like, okay, how can I be a part of it? So I don't necessarily agree with the, the idea of it can create a shadow. It pokes a little bit to the point where you want more. And that's where you as an individual should go out and seek that, that information and you know, just use it. Okay, I think I'm, no, we have 15 minutes, so I think it's enough uh, for, for me. Uh, I'm just uh, gonna open the floor for Q&A, maybe. Or maybe we can also come back to the question again after this. Yeah, uh, we can take maybe one or two questions first, yeah, from the floor. Yeah, any question we have from Rexy? Yeah, one, yeah. So, uh, how does your background in activism actually help you today in your political role as the Adun of Sri Delima? And how, do you, how does it actually help you with dealing with your constituents and the thing is when you're an activist you're on the ground dealing with people how does that actually translate and help you right now as uh, area representative yeah so um actually uh, as a politician as an elected rep i'm also always constantly on the grounds as well and um you know just being coming from a you know, activist background, as you put it. I mean, I'm not the only politician, elected rep, who has come from such backgrounds. I mean, it's not just activism, but also being able to 
see certain things in the sense that, you know, how I approach certain issues is that, okay, there's, there's always, there's no right or wrong, rather than, you know, you always have to get information from all sides. But unfortunately, sometimes, yes, you end up doing unpopular decisions, choices, but it's all about, at the end of the day, what is important is what can benefit the community. What is the best for the majority? Okay, that's, uh, inter that's interesting. Uh, maybe one or two questions. If you don't have questions, maybe I can just ask uh, one more question. Uh, uh, let's, let's share or talk more about, about youth political empowerment. I mean, uh, how do you think have our youth been doing in politics? Youth about youth political empowerment. Okay, it's, it's actually a very exciting time for, for Malaysia because we do have Undila Pamblas and uh, you know, the, the, the idea that we can get 18-year-olds to vote. But you know, every time we talk about such issues, I've actually received um, um, a number of concerns raised by individuals. The number one question that they usually ask me is, are you sure that's a good idea? How, how mature are our young Malaysians and honestly, for me, you know, looking back at, you know, when I was 18, when I was 17, you know, I do believe that we are at a stage right now where we should stop thinking if the young Malaysians are mature enough, if they're able to make the right decisions as adults, as elected reps, be it federal, uh, federal or even state or even local government uh, levels, we have to make sure that the platform, that the policies are there, and that especially when it comes to political education, we have it. We are able to, uh, to, to prepare them. So again, it boils down to organizations like Aliran. I mean, you know, having, having read Aliran monthly as a child, as a kid growing up, that helps. And also what is very important is that as adults, you know, wherever you are, when you come across uh, young Malaysians or even people in general, let's sit down and talk. Discourse is also very, very important. And uh, unfortunately, I, I have to be upfront, is that when it comes to the level of intellectualism that exists in this country, sometimes, you know, you, you're kind of left wondering, where is it going? Level It's not as what we want it to be. So I do believe that discourse needs to be, to be, yeah, and also talk about issues, you know, and... Um, Especially like right now, being Malaysians, you know, we do have the two R's, race and religion. And it's also got, getting to a point where I believe that most Malaysians are getting quite afraid to talk about it. But really, we have nothing to be afraid. The more we talk about it, the more we understand, and the more we're able to face whatever challenges that lay ahead. What kind of political education you do usually in the party? I mean, I'm, I'm quite pessimistic when... when a political party do, uh, you know, political education, things like that, right? And it's always, uh, you know, maybe you don't want to recruit people to join party, right? So usually that's what I see political party when they do uh, political education instead of, for example, Arirani. I mean, it's it's for me it's very objective, right? And 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 pol for political party maybe. You know, so you always rely on your ideology. So this is our ideology. Now I'm training you to be, you know, a member of the party. There's always a lot of suspicion when it comes to politicians and political parties. 
But for me, um, I believe that what is important is before we talk about what political parties, you know, the people would like to join, that's, that's not important. What is important is we have to focus on two core issues as Malaysians. Number one, the federal constitution. Number two, Rukunagara. So based on these two, two, two things that we have, this is how we, well, this is how I believe that we should form or for, formulate uh, political education, ba what, what it's based from. Honestly, how many of us really understand what, what is enshrined in our constitution, let alone, you know, school children, school children. But also, before we get into the idea of revamping or reforming, you know, the, the local Malaysian school education, what political parties, or rather what elected reps or even organizations can do is to empower Malaysians, empower the young kids as well by having these political education uh, classes, workshops, whatever you want to call it. Uh, number one, yang benda yang paling penting kan, bagi saya lah, as a Malaysian, is that we really need to understand what is enshrined in the Perlembagaan Malaysia. Uh, maybe more question from the floor? Any, any question? Yeah, uh, I think... Uh, okay, we have one question from... mentioned talking about religion and race. How can you do that in a constructive way in Malaysia to bring the nation together? Have you got any suggestion how to talk about race and religion? How to raise such topics in a constructive manner, is that it? You have to base it on facts. And again, that's why I mentioned that as Malaysians, for example, always base whatever arguments or points based on what is enshrined in the Constitution. Because when you have that, nobody can say, you know, this is not right, because it's right there enshrined. And I do believe that any other citizens can do the same thing too. Because globally, if we look at what's going on in the world today, right, there's a, there's a rise, there's an increase, you know, the, the right wing, the ultra white right wing is, is increasing popularity. And I believe that any, any nation can do the same thing. Race issues based on what's enshrined in your constitution, based on what's, you know, what statistics and facts that you have. Because one of, one of the best ways to counter uh, ignorance, for example, is by being well-informed. And that's where, you know, that's, that's that one bullet that we have that we can uh, take them down. Okay, from Francis, one question. years. Actually, you become extremely aware of how weak you are in trying to effect change. You know what I mean? You know, the, and actually, the political process, the electoral process, and joining a political party opens all kinds of opportunities and avenues. And yet, actually, the people who play political party politics uh, disappoint us a lot. You know, and uh, they cannot deliver. But actually, they have the wherewithal, the potential wherewithal to actually, you know, resolve a lot of issues. And I, I think one of the biggest problems about our political parties and the politicians is that they're not prepared to actually uh, discuss, open, you know, uh, begin to grow with you. They think that they have already arrived. 
And uh, my biggest problem was that after 1999-2004, and actually at the last elections, you know, here is this retired professor of politics. I offered myself to run courses. I said, I'm, I'm prepared to come. You don't need to, you know, I, I don't want a one-off. They're prepared to give you a one-off. But I'm saying, you know, why don't you, you know, let's do a course. Nice premises like Penang, you know, Institu uh, Penang Institute now. You know, let's do, I, I'm, I'll do it for free. You know, and, uh, and, oh, excellent idea. You know, we discussed and all that, but nothing ever took off. More than one occasion. They are not interested because they get so caught up with resolving the issue of the day. And then before you know it, when they're trying to resolve this issue, actually they begin to fight with one another. So let's not pretend actually that actually political parties can play that very important role because I think they're all the time caught in their own contradictions. But keep in mind that political, uh, the NGOs are extremely weak. We are in, uh, there are people who think, oh, we effected this change and all that. You know, I've disagreed with Lin Lee, for instance. She thinks that we are so powerful, we change governments ever so often and all that. I disagree with that completely. I don't think we have that kind of power. Thank, thank you, Francis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, maybe one last comment yeah, uh, from, from you. Just, 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 uh, just yeah, anything you want to say anymore? Because we only have, yeah, yeah, we, we have five minutes. We only have five minutes. I saw the sign as well. So maybe um, I'd like to uh, just maybe wrap it up a little bit by also commenting a little bit on what Francis said. Um, yes, you know what, it's not perfect, you know, the system that we have. Um, first of all, we just, as Malaysians, we just over, overcame one, one hurdle, which was, you know, overthrowing a regime that's been, been in power for, what, 60, 62 years. So, again, you know, we're faced with a lot of challenges. It's not perfect. And yes, you know, political parties, there's some, some level of infighting and fighting that happens, and you also have you know, the, the typical, stereotypical politicians that, you know, don't want to listen to ideas. But all of that is changing as well. I mean, you do have uh, elected reps, you do have community leaders who actually sit down and listen, but unfortunately, there's not enough of us. You know, there's not enough of people who are able to, to just, you know, try to right the wrongs within, within, uh, within a day. But also, I do believe that, you know, again, it all boils down to discourse for progress to happen. You know, you can't do it by yourself. The political parties can't do it by, you know, themselves. The NGOs can't do it by themselves as well. So this is where we need to sit down and also try to find a middle ground. And also this is where the communities also come in as people. Now, I always believe that when it comes to creating change and improvements, people need to be empowered. And again, it boils down to political education. I mean, you know, we want to make sure that everybody understands what rights they have as Malaysians first. And to yang penting dulu. It's been it's been uh, uh, it's been nice talking to you, Selina. So I think uh, that's all for for this evening. Yeah, thank you very much for everyone for staying for the, the session. Yep, that's all. I'd like to thank uh, Shalina and uh, Isidin. Uh, for that uh, wonderful wrap-up for a session. And I'd like to thank Rexy, Murali, uh, where Murali is, and of course, Fran Murali and Francis uh, for, for helping shape a, a conversation about the history and the meaning and the power or um, 
the lack of, uh, of activism as it expresses itself in Malaysian life. So uh, just to remind you, uh, that's probably the last session that we have today. It is the last session we have today. Uh, tomorrow we begin about 9.30. We have about 24 different things throughout the day tomorrow, uh, ending with the Sarawakian music group Nadine Rhapsody. That's happening in the evening. Uh, but 24 discussions, uh, uh, conversations, panel discussions, uh, lectures, all happening tomorrow. So please come. Please bring your friends. Please bring young people, younger people, many young people here, younger people uh, to, the, to the festival. I, I think it would be great to model themselves on wonderful conversation uh, and real passion. So thank you again for coming to the Georgetown Lit Fest. See you tomorrow.